Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode here at Voice of Adoptees. We are joined today by someone very special I've known for a very long time. A lot of people may know her as the girl who handles your paperwork, the girl who translates your documents, and the girl that moved back to Russia. A lot of her know her and respect her. Her name carries weight. Please welcome Sasha. Sasha's currently in Russia. She's an adoptee just like us, but we're going to hand it over to her because she has a lot to say. So Sasha, welcome. Um, we hope you are well and welcome to the show. Why don't you tell us about yourself briefly? Hi, everyone. My name is Sasha and I was born in St. Petersburg, Russia, um, which was in that time known as Leningrad. I was born in 1990 and I was adopted in 1995 as a five and a half year old by a couple from California. They adopted five children plus another one they fostered, so six. We all grew up together, but we ended up in different locations all around the world. Um, yeah, so I grew up in the United States until 2015 when I decided to move permanently back to Russia. Uh, before I moved permanently back, I did a study abroad in 2011 in St. Petersburg where I was able to see the life that I could have had as a um, emancipated orphan. And I became very scared, very nervous, and very overwhelmed by my past. I was not ready in 2011 when I traveled for the first time after 20, oh wait, 1995. So 16 years, I was in the States. Sorry, I don't know how many years that was. 10, 20, 10, 20. 25 about 24, years. 25, yeah. 25 yeah. years. I'm sorry. Matt's not my suit. It's all right. Anyway, so about 25 years after being adopted, I, oh, no, 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 no. I was 20 years old when I went to Russia. So it was 15 years. Oh, wow. After yeah. being adopted, I came back to Russia for the first time. I did not know the language, even though I had studied it at university. I did not fluently speak it. And I did a year abroad as a Russian language student which was very difficult because I was the only student that was of Russian heritage in the program and learning Russian for me was personal. It wasn't recreational. So I ended up being very um, like isolated and I ended up in very bad coping mechanisms in St. Petersburg that first year back after being adopted. And I was not ready to face my past, even though I was, forced to face part of it because of just my I don't know I guess my naive perspective like oh I'm here so I should start doing something about learning about my past but I was not surrounded by people who were supportive and who understood my psychological needs my mental needs my spiritual needs and I ended up uh, not lightly spoken I ended up on the on the metro an hour and a half away from my actual home in some strange apartments with some strange people. And I just, that was the lowest point that I've ever felt in my life. Well, one of two, but that was, I was 21 years old. I just turned, I'd almost turned 21. So I was still 20. And I, and I understood that I wasn't ready to find my identity or my past, my family. And I ended up after that year abroad, I came home and I needed therapy. 
and I tried to talk to some woman, but she wasn't a good therapist, so I forgot about it. Um, and I ended up getting a American Fulbright grant, which is a very prestigious grant for university college graduates who want to do extra research or who want to do a it's kind of like a, a year abroad teaching English or a year abroad on the opposite end teaching a foreign language in the states if you're from another country so I ended up teaching a year of English in Russia about half a year after my first trip back to Russia after being adopted so this was my second trip to Russia in 2012 and I I remember the week before, I still hadn't decided that I would go, even though I had been given the grants and I was sitting there in church and I was thinking, my goodness, I either need God to go with me and show up for me, or I need some real big courage to go without God. And I ended up um, experiencing God in that week before I went to Fulbright in a way that just really reassured me. Um, the city I did not know I was going to, the translation was God is there. That's the translation of the name of the city I was sent to by assignment. I didn't choose the city. So I was able to go for a year to the city and I really kind of delved into my spiritual identity there. And I put on the back burner my identity as an adoptee. My, my search for being, you know, my past and all these things. Mind you, I still hadn't found anything by 2012. Um, I was 22. And I, I really started making friendships. I really started digging into the Russian identity uh, without the adopted identity, just the pure Russian identity, a language, friendships, culture, and I guess another part of it would be the spiritual identity, right? That connected to all of it. I found my, my strength there in that city. And at the end of that time, I ended up finding um, a camp where I was teaching English to kids for a couple months. It was a random um, by chance find. And at the end of that camp, I met uh, my now husband, so we've been together for 10 years now, and um, that's kind of where I want to start my story um, is when I met this amazing man who had never met an American before. He had never brought a girl home to his parents, let alone an American girl. And I'm sitting there at the bus stop waiting to see him for the second time. And he comes, picks me up and says, oh, by the way, we're going to meet my parents. I'm like, you couldn't have told me sooner. I'm like in this summer outfit, like not really parents worthy outfit. I'm thinking, oh, oh my that's, goodness. That's, that's, that's great. Yeah. But the funny story is he had just gotten off the bus from his parents' home and 20 minutes ago told his parents, hey, I'm bringing a girl home. And they're in their pajamas. You couldn't have told us sooner. Like we're in our pajamas. We're supposed to maybe make a good impression. How are we supposed to make a lunch for her? So anyway, they, that they sounds like a guy's, nice uh, that's definitely a guy's <laughs> thought right there. Yep. No plans whatsoever. Yep. <laughs> oh, it was so silly. But um, anyway, that first meeting with his parents went really well because I had brought a bag of photographs, which I had brought with me on my full ride experience as an icebreaker, as a way to kind of let people know who I am, where I'm from, why I'm here. And so I was able to do that with his parents. They were shocked, of course. 
And he had never seen the photos either because it was our second time seeing each other. Mind you, we'd only known each other nine days and he brings me home to his parents. So I'm thinking, oh my goodness, nine days and you're already bringing me home to your parents. That's a little much. Anyway, it went well for for good reason. I mean, now we've been together 10 years, so it must have gone well, right? I was going to um, say, well, doesn't uh, doesn't the whole uh, marriage thing move pretty quick over there anyway? <laughs> you meet someone and that's it? Okay. Well, I mean, we, well, the funny story is three weeks into us, he wanted to propose, but his friends decided, no, don't propose, just give her earrings. And I'm thinking he's going to propose, but he didn't. And then two years after we met, two and a half years after we met, I came back to Russia. So I left Russia that summer and we dated for two and a half years online. And then we came back. I came back in 2015 after Fulbright. Um, and we've been living together ever since, but there's a whole lot in between there. Right. So right before I left, uh, my Fulbright, I was trying to get a, an extension on my visa, but it wasn't possible. And I found out that those two and a half years while I was waiting to go back to Russia after my Fulbright, that I needed to get a passport and I needed to get my citizenship verified. And it took two and a half years, took thousands of dollars. It took some really incompetent uh, workers from this agency that was very rude to figure it out for me. Um, and now I, I'm thankful for that experience because I learned a lot. And now I do the same thing that that incompetent company does. But I'm one person. I do it all on my own without, you know, as much in I do it as with much confidence and grace as possible, depending on the situation. But um, that process was really, really degrading because I had to, you know, prove to them who I was. I had to show them my documents, and then I had to show them documents I didn't even have. It's like, and then I had to get the help of my now husband and all of his friends, all the clout that he carried in order to get things pushed through and processed for me. Um, that includes when I came back to Russia in 2015, that includes an internal passport, uh, tax documents, medical documents, insurance documents, education documents. I got another degree here in Russia um, as a translator um, after finishing my US degree. It's just, there's just so much that my husband has done for me that if I have not had the support of this one man and his desire to take in a strange American Russian adopted girl who was so naive and so like, ah, I idolized Russia for those first 15 years. Um, I would daydream about my mom and dad for years and years and years. Um, I would daydream about certain things about my adopted family that were never true and that kind of fell apart during my years being in school um, out of the siblings that I had several of those siblings had a very difficult childhood with us and it caused a lot of heartbreak and I was trying to relive the ideal childhood that was the very first five years of my adoption before we adopted my two my two brothers so I, i'm jumping back and forth but i think it, it's trying to, i'm trying to make sense of how to move forward from here um 
my husband and the way that he helped me. So he never spoke English. And uh, my parents, when they adopted us, my mom took, um, got a private tutor who was actually our nanny for several, several years. And we called her Babushka, like grandmother. Um, she's still Babushka for me, but, you know, she's just another woman who came and supported my parents who adopted three Russian children. Um, uh, first three and then two more and then one more. So the first three were 13, 10 and five. And then the next two were five and 12. And then the, the one in between there was, I think about 11, not 11, eight, uh, seven or eight. So all the kids were much older and it was a very difficult adjustment period. Um, the second time around when they adopted the second two boys. But my mom decided to learn Russian as an American woman. She was in her early 50s when she adopted us. And my dad was in his early 30s. So there was a 20 year age difference between them. Uh, my mom became very fluent in Russian. She would read and write it and she would help us keep it for a little few years. And then you know, and then we didn't really want to keep it any longer once we got into school and we got friends and we just didn't really want to be different than anybody else. So um, when I was 17, I told my mom, hey, I want to start learning Russian. We made flashcards and we started using the Pimsleur Russian books, uh, audio books, uh, very old fashioned, not CDs, not like almost like the hard um floppy disks almost like, you know, the, the, the cassette tapes yeah yeah um, I st we still have them actually or I think we might have given them to someone but it was very um recently I got a hold of all her journals and I haven't read through them but she had about six seven journals completely filled up from probably a couple years of writing every day in a Russian journal what we did um and it just it inspires me to think that my mom, when she was in her 50s, started learning Russian so that she could talk to us and understand us. And, um, you know, I started learning Russian, relearning it when I was 17. I went into college at 18 and started um, a degree in Russian language um, with a couple other things on the side. But that degree was really, really important to me. And they actually didn't have a full-blown degree. So I made it a self-designed um i got all the approval of all the deans of all the supervisors all the people and it took about six months to get all the paperwork sorted out so that it could become an official degree in their degree catalog book it was pretty awesome self-designed but that's, that's pretty um, cool yeah that's impressive yeah it was yeah my my advisor was very supportive although she was not supportive of me going to russia she's a very uh my advisor was a older woman from St. Petersburg, Leningrad, a very, very typical Soviet woman. And she really hammered into me that you have to have impeccable language, impeccable words. And I learned a lot from her, even though those first four years were not helpful in speaking skills, they were helpful in like this, like, I'm going to prove you wrong. You don't yeah, want me to go kind of like that mental too. preparation a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. She, she really didn't want me to go back. And when I did go back and I got a Fulbright and I showed her, ha, 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 I got a Fulbright, which is very rare. Um, three of her kids actually got Fulbrights, as I think I'm aware of three for sure. Me and two other kids, two other students. 
sorry, kids. I always say kids, but I mean students. Anyway, she was like a little bit different on that end. She's like, oh, wow, full drive. And, you know, and we still talk every once in a while. And, you know, it would be great to see her here in St. Petersburg one of these days, but I'm not sure she'll ever come here again. She's getting older and she's in her 80s already. And, um, or she just turned 80, I'm, I forget. Anyway, it's just, it's, um, it's really nice to have those people along the way, like my husband, my advisor, who really supported me in um, returning to Russia. But um, my parents did not. The only thing my parents supported was the academic program, the study abroad program, because it was a very structured thing and it wasn't um, focused on my biological roots. It was just focused on Russian language. Even though the Russian degree was not their idea, um, it was the the it was a very difficult conversation to have with my parents about I want to become a Russian language major, um, because they were afraid. You know, I was I was their baby. You know, I was the the kid that they put all of their hopes and dreams onto. I mean, you could call it. You could call it something like the dream child. Yeah, I mean, there are other words for it. I don't want to use that because I, I love my parents very much, but I very much felt when I was that age, very much on display. And my achievements were as much their achievements as they were mine. And I mean, I don't, I don't begrudge them it now. I'm in my 30s, so why should I? But when I was a teenager, it was very difficult. And when I was in my 20s, it was, it was very complicated to explain to them, I don't want to be a doctor. I don't want to be a therapist. I want to go back to Russia and I want to help orphans. But that didn't work out either. So I got back to St. Petersburg in 2011 as a student and I did my study abroad program. And it's where I had said earlier about ending up in a strange person's apartment hours away from my own apartment and being at my rock bottom. Um, that semester I started volunteering at my orphanage as just like a playmate um, for the kids and I you know remember walking in there and thinking oh my goodness like I remember the smells I remember certain toys I remember certain rooms I remember the food like I would I they would give me some food and I would be like that's exactly what I had of course it was better than for what they give the kids because I was a guest and I was an adult and they would have cake in the kitchen, but the cake wasn't for the kids. And that made me angry. Like you're making cake for me, but the kids get nothing. Like it just, and the kids would come up to me and just hug me and not let me go. And, you know, seeing the bathrooms where I remember and the bedrooms and just that their eyes, that was what got me is like, when you, when they would come up to you with those eyes, like, you know, like, who are you? And are you here for me? And I just saw myself and those little kids. Like I was that five-year-old girl when I walked into that orphanage and I'm 21 years old, right? And I'm just petrified of being faced with my own childhood fear of being abandoned, of being um, not loved, being not fed, being sick, being alone, you know, all those fears, they were all just came crashing down on me. And I was not in a safe host family through the university abroad program. So I did not have a safe place to go home either. 
And I ended up the only safe place and the only hot meal I got that whole year of study abroad was this family that I actually was a tutor for their child, a very rich family. And I went there twice a week for a hot meal. Um, my study abroad program doesn't know about this. Um, I ended up, I did not complain about the host family because they had a little girl and I did not want them to get in trouble. And I felt, okay, well, they could just use the money that I used for the program that they got a stipend to maybe make their lives a little better. And I'll just grin and bear it, which I did. And it was a very bad decision. Um, it was a bad coping mechanism. I was not protecting myself. I wasn't dealing with my emotions. I was just drinking, smoking, and, you know, having relations with men and that whole year um, outside of my university ever knowing about it. And I got into extremely difficult situations where um, because of my lack or lack of desire to know my past, to know my identity, I blocked it out. I um, something that really is very, very interesting. A lot of people think that Russian women, all they do is they have this, you know, impeccable fashion, impeccable makeup, and they just, you know, put on a show for everybody when they go out to the grocery store. Yes, that might be true. And um, for a lot of women here, when I was 20 years old, this was 12 years ago, I, that's what I thought. So I would dress to the T, I would put on my makeup, I would be this impeccably beautiful, dolled up 20 year old, you know, very attractive girl. Um, but inside I was dying. I literally saw myself dying in front of the mirror. I saw a skeleton. I saw um, my life was cursed from the very beginning um, to go back when I was born. I was born at 31 weeks. So the normal gestation is 40 weeks. I was born at 31 weeks. I was only one and a half kilos, which was about three pounds. And I was one of the twin set. Um, my twin passed away when she was 20 days old. Yes, 20 days old. And the circumstances of her death are still unknown. Her place of burial or cremation is unknown. And that is the only question I have left about my past, um, which I'm still fighting to get information for. The problem is the Russian society, the Russian government, the laws state that once you are adopted, you are legally cut off. You are no longer connected to your biological identity, legally speaking. You have no rights to any information. You have no rights to medical records. You have no rights to legal documents. Your original birth certificate may as well never have existed. Um, to my fortune, I was able to get all of my documents from my father's safe. I did not ask permission. I just took them because I knew that I was already of age and I didn't feel like it was stealing. It was my paperwork. And, and he never locked it. So it wasn't like it was a secret. He said, they're there if you want them. So I took right. them and um, all of my documents had the uh, medical records, all my documents. I had my original birth certificate with my biological name on it. I had my biological, my birth certificate with my adopted parents name. I had my adoption certificate with my first uh, biological name and my adopted name. I had the court decision, although it wasn't a court system back then. It was a, um, a civil, a civil process. It, it was before the, 2000 changes, um, the changes in 2000, I mean. 
Um, so I was able to map out my entire story. Mind you, when I was in high school, I searched for my family. I never found them. This was when we still had dial-up. Yep, dial-up. I, I, re- I remember those. The phone. Yep. Um, and I just remember thinking, what if I search? Like, what if I, they're on there on the internet? And of course they weren't, you know. Um, but in 2016, I was with my husband. We went back to St. Petersburg for the May holidays. And we also went back to St. Petersburg because someone from the orphanage contacted me that I was connected to because of my study abroad program saying that some guy wanted to connect me, uh, connect to me because I had an inheritance from my biological parents. And that ended up being a four year process of trying to fight for my inheritance. And in that process in 2016, I literally found everybody I was looking for in the span of one week uh, with the help of another girl online. I found one of my sisters and I, she found another brother and then she found another sister. So I ended up having more sisters and brothers than I knew about. Um, and they connected me to neighbors and other relatives. And um, it was a lot of about that one 2016 was a very complicated year um, because I found out every detail about my family history. And I also got married. And in that process, I I told my husband, I said, I do not want to start a family until I close my past, until I put it, I put it away and I'm, I'm at peace with it. Um, And the problem was that everybody that I was talking to that was connected to my past was either shaming everybody else and saying everybody was a piece of crap or they were putting me on such a pedestal like my parents did that I just didn't feel comfortable being the, the one that like swooped in and saved everybody. It just made me uncomfortable and it made me uncomfortable that all of my relatives and acquaintances connected to my story were really harping on my biological parents, their decisions, my biological siblings, their decisions. And they were just making excuses for not trying harder themselves to fight for me and my siblings to stay in Russia. Um, I talked to my, my sisters, all of them, and one of them got taken by another family to another country, illegally adopted. All of her paperwork was changed. Um, she was taken across the border without a passport, and she was manipulated into being um, part of a family that needed her help for selfish reasons. That family ended up being criminals, and to this day, I cannot connect with her as I would like to because she's afraid to come visit me um, because her family, she, you know, lots of legal questions, lots of legal problems. Um, and unfortunately I've had to register her as a person. Um, we call it, um, uh, so it's like a person who's disappeared without any trace. Um, I've had to contact the government. It's almost like a missing, missing persons report pretty much. Right. Um. But not, yeah, but not yeah. even missing persons, but it's like she's completely disappeared. We're not looking for her anymore. She, it's, it's closed. She's done. Got she's it. not existing okay. anymore. She's, yeah. she's disappeared. 
um, Prapavshi Bezistia, right? So it's like she's disappeared without any information on her. Um, but in actuality, I know exactly where she is. Um, but I, I did that to protect her identity and to protect her family, um, even though it wasn't what I would have liked to do. It just didn't work out the other way around. Um, then my other sister, I went to visit her a couple of years ago. I met her. She's older than me by almost 15 years. And it was a, it was a very difficult meeting. A lot of information came out, a lot of anger, a lot of um, sadness, a lot of emotion. My sister's not healed. And um, I ended up being the one, you know, helping her cope, helping her do a lot of healing process in a week. And I'm the younger one by 15 years. Um, so, and that's, that's my situation with all my siblings is uh, minus my younger brother. Like all of my siblings are older and I've always stepped up to um, in some way or another help them. Um, and I was a mature one. And, you know, in, in 2016, I was tired of being mature. I needed someone to take care of me and take care of my emotional needs. And that's where my husband kept, kept in, uh, stepped in. And my husband is not adopted. My husband has never had, uh, you know, orphanage connections. His parents have been married for over 30 years. He's got a whole bunch of brothers, He's got a full family, you know, of course, with their own problems, but not the problems that my family had had, um, not to that severity and not to the point where the kids were taken away. And so I was able to really, um, you know, hang on to my husband as my strength in that time. And he did a lot of pushing and shoving to get me to a position where I am now a fully functioning, very well adapted, very healed, very whole human being. And I recently told someone, I said, I decided that I would never give life to another child until I um, closed my past and I gave my story the finish that it needed, my my origin story, the finish that it needed. And I I'm able to now truthfully tell my children when they get older that this is who your mother was, this is where she came from, and this is why uh, your mother believes that her life was saved and that God truly put her on her path and, and so on and so forth. Right. It was really, really intentional in that way, but a very, very difficult process, honestly, to say the least, because moving abroad, having been here now seven years with all the ups and downs that go with moving abroad and everything else going around in the world, um, it hasn't been easy to not have close family close by. Um, it hasn't been easy to adjust to, you know, different cultural things, foods, um, learning still the language, though I'm fluent. I'm learning every day different things. I didn't grow up with a Russian childhood. So all those childhood, um, like second second hand knowledge, I don't have. And I'm learning that as I go with my own children, which is really cool to have kind of like a third childhood. That is um, pretty cool, because I yeah. Consider, because I consider, you know, the first five years was my first childhood and then my childhood in the United States and now my third childhood with my children. It's really, really cool. Um, and I get to give them both the American, you know, the luxury of having an English-speaking um, childhood and a Russian-speaking childhood. Um, 
but it's very much so, um, you know, my adoption is a huge part of why I'm here. I didn't, I didn't finish that part. So I went to the orphanage as a volunteer and I saw myself in the eyes of those kids and I just got spooked and I stopped. And though I am connected and I have a very few um, really very close friends here in Russia that are ministering to orphans, that are working with charities, that are really pouring into the, the system for emancipated orphans, I haven't myself really stepped up into that role um, because my role, as I see it, is more for children who are adopted. Um, you and I both know that when you're adopted, it doesn't mean that your orphan mentality goes away. It doesn't mean that you all of a sudden become this happy-go-lucky, perfect, health-wise, mentally, psycho psychologically. It doesn't happen overnight. It happens over many, many years, if it ever happens. Right. There are some uh, adoptees who still struggle with, with some very, very severe side effects of having been orphaned. Um, having um, suffered multiple adoptions, multiple foster homes, multiple orphanages. I was one of the lucky ones. I only had one orphanage, one adopted family, and they were a good family. We had our ups and downs. We had our, you know, stints with the police and social services. And, you know, that would happen to any good family with non, um, with, with biological children too. It doesn't really matter. Um, in that in that case, but um, I consider my parents in the way that they raised me, just the way that they knew how they did their best, and I'm grateful every single day for their decision to bring me into their family because now I get to bring their values into my family. I get to raise my children as American girls with the values that my mother and father instilled in me, including faith, family, hard work, education. And, you know, above all, loving God. Um, and then I also get the privilege of raising them Russian with this sense of community and multi-generational family and the Russian language and the Russian food and the Russian, you know, mentality. And um, while I fought hard to create my identity as, as a dual citizen um my children i am so grateful I, I can give that to them and they don't have to fight for it they get to enjoy that and they get to make their own decisions when they get older how they're going to use their identities for their futures right my job is to give them what they need and let them flourish um but i my work with adoptees is uh, extremely important just because I've gone through every single step of being adopted, adjusting there, leaving home, adjusting outside of home, going back to Russia, uh, finding my family, and then staying in Russia. And now I am in full communication with my family here and my family in the States. And it's nice to have those open doors. And it's also nice to be able to say that I don't feel obligated to please either side of my families. I'm in a really good position where my only priority now is my husband and my kids. But 
my biological family and my adopted family, they met for the one and only time at my wedding. And my wedding was the huge uh, catalyst for bringing both my worlds together, both my past, my present and my future. And I literally, David, like, I got to choose my name. I finally got to choose what name I wanted. You know, when you're born, you don't choose. When you're adopted, you don't choose. Well, unless you're older, you choose. But still, you kind of choose under duress, um, you know, trying to please yourself or someone else. Right, right. But this time, like, not only did I choose my husband, but, uh, you know, he didn't choose his name, but I chose to take his name. And I... It, and it finally gave me that freedom to call this, this my home. And I remember right after we got married, like about a year after we got married, I finally was walking down the, the street down my, uh, near my apartment. And I just was just talking to God. And I said, I'm home and I feel home and I don't feel lost and I don't feel um, broken anymore. Um, mind you, that was very much tested having given birth because my birth story is so traumatic. Um, I can remind you that I was a twin and my twin passed away and my, my, my birth circumstances were very, very difficult. Um, and then having given birth to two children and going through the process of giving them human identities, as strange as it sounds, I, understand how hard God must have been fighting for me so that I could become a recognized living, breathing human baby. And I'm still fighting for the recognition for my, my twin sister and her, her death circumstances, which is very difficult to talk about, but it got me even more passionate once I gave birth because I saw those little tiny babies and I saw my sister and I said, how in the world does an, an entire country consider that a two day old baby is not human enough, not alive enough to be uh, honored with, or a 20 day old baby, that's how old my sister was, to be honored enough with being buried um, as a human, she doesn't have a burial place. She doesn't have a cremation record. She has nothing. She has a piece of paper that says she died, but even that can be faked. And I look at my children and I am so thankful. And I look in the mirror and I don't see that, that skeleton. I don't see my curse anymore, which I broke my curse in 2016. I literally uh, walked around St. Petersburg with my husband as a guest and I had to go to all those places that I was afraid of that were connected to my past or connected to my trauma as a study abroad student. And I had to um, do some symbolic things to get rid of that, um, what was holding me back, what was literally, I was in a vice grip. Like I was deathly afraid of everything. And I was, I was not breathing, literally. I was so dead inside. And now today, I mean, you can see me face to face. I hope that people can hear this in my voice that I literally am thriving. Um, I'm in my favorite cafe. I've been going here every week for the past seven years. And my children come here 
they know me here. You know, the neighborhood knows us. I, I just feel loved. I feel known. I feel well. I feel, um, you know, acknowledged. You feel and because home. of that, I feel at home. And because of that, my work with adoptees is so much more important because that's what I want to nurture. That's what I want to um, carry, carry on. You know, there are many, many children that are still searching, that are still seeking for their identities. And I know the process, I know the documents, I know the fears, I know the failures, I know the successes. Um, I know all the little things that helped me and all the things that really hurt me. Um, but I do know that above all, if I did not have my faith, I would not be sitting here today. Um, I would not have survived uh, my first um, my first experience with having having a child that passed away in 2017 and um you know I'll I'll tell you this story it's we had just gotten married and we had gotten pregnant and I was terrified of pregnancy still to this not to this day but up to that point I was still very afraid of it and for many reasons both because of my birth experience and the uh, trauma that I experienced when I was a child in the States, one of my friend's moms passed away in childbirth. And I had was sitting there, I was losing my baby. And I was just thinking, you know, well, maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe I'm not worthy enough. Maybe I'm not strong enough. Maybe I'm not even alive. And so God's not giving me this baby. And like, why the hell am I in this forsaken country that's trying to just tear me apart someone spoke to me in 2011 and they said either a city accepts you or it doesn't either a country accepts you or it doesn't and that's why everybody keeps asking well why did you come back to russia and i'm thinking well um yeah it doesn't make sense in my head either like when i was first born they tried to kill me this country tried to kill me um and then when i you know came back in 2011 i almost passed away and then 2017, I almost passed away. If I hadn't gone to the hospital in time, I would have died in my apartment. And, um, you know, and then when you fast forward, passed through all of those experiences with death, right? You, you realize that you have a choice. You can either choose to live and flourish and you can thank God for that life and pursue the life that God is uh, forging for you in your future. Or you can continue to live in that trap, in that lie that your life is not worth anything and that you're not worth anything. And you can choose to, you know, until you physically die, live in that circumstance. And I, in that moment, I said to myself, I know that I am worth, I'm worthy and I am ready and I'm alive and no amount of fear, no amount of death, no amount of bad circumstances is going to tell me otherwise I was created for life I was created for a reason and I guess I'll end with this when I was when I was about four years old um, it was told to me that my father prophesied about me that I would be the person in my family that would rewrite all of the the family like she would be the one that would prove to everyone that our family was not just a family that was cursed, but it was a family that was 
under God's protection, I guess, so to speak, right? Um, and I didn't know that until a few years ago, mind you, doing all my steps in life. Now, today, I understand that my adoption was not a coincidence. And I, every week I talk to my father, I, I talked to him a few minutes ago, actually. And it's just nice to know that even though I'm on the other side of the world, my relationship with my family, with my father and mother has always been strong. As an adult, as a teenager, we all struggle with our identities. And I had to go through that process of them accepting my decision to go back to Russia. And then accepting my husband being at my wedding was the most beautiful, beautiful memory that I ever created with my family and um, all together. And um, I thank God every day for being able to now walk out on the street with my children, speak English to them freely, openly, and invite others into our conversation and speak openly about who I am, why God, why God brought me back to Russia and why I am the person I am and what I foresee in my future. And I see people reuniting with their families, people healing, um, our country's coming back together as, as, you know, relationally as possible. And at, that just starts with one person at a time. That's where I'm, that's where I'm at. Wow. That was the most detailed story I think I've ever heard in my life. You touched on pretty much everything I wanted to ask and I do have a couple of follow-up questions, not many, because you did answer pretty much everything possible I could have think of, um, thought of, I meant. Um, so I guess one takeaway that I know some people will be very curious about, what's your message for those who say they want to be like you and they want to go back to Russia? There are a fair amount of people out there who think that they, you know, kind of like how you said, you were finally back. You made this transition. Yes, it took a lot of hard work. It took a lot of years, but now you're comfortable to call it home. What do you say for these people, you know, who might live in the U.S. or New Zealand or Canada that say, you know, I really am struggling with my identity. I think if I go back to Russia, I, I can be like Sasha. I can call it home one day. What would you say? Maybe some advice or anything. Yeah, the, the advice I would say is uh, don't make the mistake of trying to create your identity by going back to Russia. Have your identity solidified where you're at and be confident in who you are now so that when you go to Russia, you don't completely collapse under the pressure of trying to create something that might not be creatable. Does that make sense? I tried that and it didn't work. And I, I, and on top of that, in a more practical fashion, learn the language, have, um, have support systems in this country, as well as in your adoptive country, people who are you going to, who are going to support you while you are abroad. Uh, if you do choose to move abroad, if you choose to move here permanently, you know, make all those decisions with, you know, a grain of salt because moving to Russia right now is not a very 
economically strong choice. Um, but for personal reasons, I'm going to stay. Um, yeah, so don't try to force uh, an identity on yourself that you don't already have and always be ready with the practical questions of moving to any new country. Right. That's very well, very well said. I couldn't agree more. Um, I, another follow-up question I have is you talk about, you know, obviously Russia is going to be where you're at. You briefly mentioned that um, you're going to think about the future of what, you know, what's going to happen to Russia. And now you have this, you know, your American side that you're not going to forget about. Right. And now you're raising children of your own. Um, have you thought about how you're going to approach welcoming them into their other side of the family? Because if you think about it, it's kind of you're in a unique position where you were adopted from Russia, like a lot of us were. And we had this unknown side, right, that we didn't know a lot about our adoption in, in that family that we've been missing all these years in Russia. Do you think um, your own children are going to feel in some way similar, emotionally speaking, that they have this kind of unknown family on the American side that they want to connect and get to understand, like, what's the American culture like? You know, what's what's her adoptive parents like? I want to know that side of the family. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's a good question. Um, so ever since the girls were born, they have been Skyping with family in the States every week, every Sunday. Um, I am planning a trip to Europe this summer so the girls can meet their grandpa for the first time. Unfortunately, my mother passed away recently and a few years ago, so she never met the girls. But um, I have a box of things that I will show them eventually, slowly but surely, and teach them about their grandmother, who, they, who she was, and why their mom is the way she is because of my mom, their grandmother. So I, I don't think their American identity is going to suffer um, in that sense because I'm very, very dedicated to keeping them connected to the American side, very much so. Um, and also we have a lot of American friends here in Russia who we, we see regularly. So that, that definitely isn't the problem. Yeah, well, that's, I didn't know about your uh, loss recently, so I'm sorry about that. Um, but it's great that you're gonna be able to pass on that legacy to your children, definitely. Um, now you mentioned that your husband, uh, you know, he never met an American before. What were his first thoughts? Oh, he, he, he wasn't starstruck. He was just making jokes about, you know, little stereotypes about Americans. Like, is it true that this and this and this, you know, like a 20 year old guy would do. Um, but he was very relaxed, very at ease, and um, slowly but surely has learned a lot in the last 10 years. Um, now some of his very close friends are Americans or foreigners, and um, they don't speak fluent Russian, but, you know, they communicate as well as they can. And, you know, I've seen my husband really grow and mature into a more well-rounded, open-minded um person, though he grew up with a very, very Soviet mentality, uh, very, very um, small uh, town upbringing, which has been very open since moving to cosmopolitan 
St. Petersburg and also through my connections with other foreigners and, you know, us being together that he's just, he's learned a lot in the last 10 years. Yeah, I bet. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. How's but not English? a lot of English. I was just about ready to say, <laughs> yeah, okay. Yep, I figured. So, Maybe so one day. One year of English and that's about all he did. He's not very academic. So, and I, and I told him, look, I speak Russian. You don't need to learn English, but here's the trick. The girls are learning English. My girls are. So they already know English better than their daddy does. So pretty soon Uh-oh. they're going to be teaching their daddy English. <laughs> That's right. And he's just, you know, he's picking it up here and there with all the videos and music and books and things like that. So, and it's a very, um, uh, I, I guess I would say a passive approach, which is what we need. You know, he doesn't need academic books. He just needs, you know, fun and games. And eventually yeah. one day he'll surprise me with the full on, you know, monologue of something in english and i'll be like wow after 30 years you can speak it good job yeah <laughs> i think they have a but term for that i think it's a, yeah i think the term of that for that would be household english you know hey that's yeah. a sink wow <laughs> <laughs> uh, <Stop>. yeah <laughs> so did uh your um your uh, children that are born in russia obviously they're russian citizens by birth now did you register them uh, to be American citizens as well? Yes, they have two passports, and that was quite an experience uh, because the first, uh, my first daughter, we got in, and, and the embassy closed two weeks later. So, uh, and then my second daughter, things hell broke loose, and I had to go to Germany. And I had just given wow. birth. It was like three weeks after, no, two months after I gave birth. And um, it's a new program where you can get a child their citizenship abroad without having to bring the baby there, without having both parents there physically. You did it all online. So it's a new like state-of-the-art program. Um, it's something that I... I'm very grateful for, but the girls. Uh, I was going to say, does it does it work the online system? Yes. Okay. Yes, so it does. Wasn't, it wasn't like both have passports. Got it. So it wasn't any so of that. We're the, going to Europe this summer. That's great. No healthcare.gov website broken or anything like that. No, <laughs> Cur- no. Courtesy was, of the U.S. government. This was this was really good people helping me. Just that's awesome. Get step by step, and I and I told my husband that's a priority. I want my girls to have that document because that's that's a huge um, future builder. Whether they choose to use it or not, that's not up to me, but it's up to me to give them that option because they have that privilege. Exactly. I, I agree. Um, exactly. I mean, I kind of feel like it's in sort of uh, it's in sort of a weird way. It's kind of related to when someone adopts a child from abroad and that I feel like the adoptive parents should know that, hey, you were from Russia. Maybe one day you might want to do something that, you know, at the time I didn't feel like you wanted to do. But then again, it's not really their business as they that their adopted children get older. They want to make those decisions. So it's interesting to see that you're letting, you know, giving the option at a younger age, like, hey, you know, you're also an American. You can use that if you'd like. And uh, you give them the options well, and they do what they want. It's my it. responsibility. Exactly. Right? You, 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 you have to give it to them because, you know, as an adoptee, you and I both know our citizenships were 
you know, like sleeping or whatever, our passports expired and our parents didn't know what the heck to do. Right. No one told them the system was such a mess back then. And now as 20, 30, young 20s, late 30s, um, we're all struggling to figure out not just the paperwork, but our identities. And unfortunately, part of that is our parents' fault. So I'm just trying not to create that same problem for my children so that they have equally functioning paperwork in both countries and they can choose what they want to do with it when they're 18. Yeah, I very practical approach and very honest approach. And I think that's a very good thing what you're doing. So uh, it's my job. So it's not that easy, it's not that difficult <laughs> to do paperwork. I was I like going to say, so. yeah, I was going to say, if anyone needs help, you know who to contact. But um, I'm going to, before we wrap it up, I'm going to give you one last time to say a few things that you want to leave the audience with. If there's any last remarks you'd like to make something that is the big takeaway, what would it be? I guess the big takeaway is there's never a coincidence in life. And if you have a desire to go back to Russia and search for those roots, create for yourself a future that nobody else believes in, but you do it and do it confidently. And along the way, ask for help. And along the way, continue to believe in yourself and it'll happen. Uh, whether you're adopted from Russia or China or Korea or Japan or Germany, it doesn't matter. You have every right to create from your own story the future that you want. And the approval of other people is is not the, the end-all, be-all. The approval that you need is from yourself and from your you know, from God, if you're a believer or from, you know, from yourself, either that or that. Right. And, and that is what I say, always do what you believe and always do what you want. If you have a gut feeling connected to adoption and your journey to finding yourself or creating a new self, do what, what is for you and not what everybody tells you you should become because of your adoption. Um, your adoption isn't the only part of your life that matters. And it is only one small aspect of it. And because of your adoption, you have the ability to choose what's next. Live from St. Petersburg, Russia. Sasha, it's a pleasure to have you. That was a, an amazing story. And it is so just fun watching you throughout the last 10 years of just me knowing you, watching you grow into this successful person that is conquering life and doing what you think is best. Thank you so much again for joining us. Um, this featured uh, podcast will be available on our website, www.voiceofadoptees.com. Thank you again, everyone, for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Good night. Mm -hmm.